Uh, you know, growing up in the 1980s in a non-denominational Bible church meant that on semi-regular occasions, we were subjected to conferences and speakers, among other things, <clears throat> about the dangers of rock music. Apparently, there were many of these speakers for whom the content of rock lyrics and certainly the lives of the musicians themselves, which represented, uh, you know, something for well-meaning Christian youth to steer clear of. Uh, but especially worrisome for many was what happened when, for some reason, you played these songs backwards. Uh, so for reasons I still don't quite understand, there were those who, when they listened to certain pop songs in reverse, um, heard secret messages for the devil or about smoking marijuana or something like that. And the chief suspect among these songs was the most popular rock song of all time, Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Apparently, if you played certain parts of the song backwards at a certain speed, you could hear lead singer Robert Plant pledging himself to the devil. Which, of course, it didn't help that lead guitarist uh, uh, Jimmy Page had earlier in the 70s secured rights to purchase a castle uh, in Scotland uh, owned by a former very famous Satanist by the name of Aleister Crowley. Uh, and as if that weren't enough, there was an interview in the, in the late 1970s that Plant did with a magazine uh, where they were asking about the process of writing the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven, <laughs> at which time he uncorked this little uh, evangelical panic-inducing gem of a quote. He said this, he says, I was holding a pencil and paper, and for some reason I was in a bad mood. Then all of a sudden my hand was writing out the words... There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. I just sat there and looked at the words and then almost leapt out of my seat. The implication, of course, was that there was some mystical, satanic power that had moved the pen for him. We took all these things quite seriously in the 1980s, so count your blessings. Now look, regardless of what you think about my own teenage obsessions, I think that story illustrates a very subtle error that only gets highlighted when Christians, starts to, Christians start to think about their relationship to the spiritual world. Hollywood, I think, has taught us to think about spiritual activity kind of in the same way that we think about magic. Uh, fantastic creatures, you know, with beady glowing eyes appear in darkened corners of our home. Secret demonic incantations come out of us when we listen to popular music or demons moved Robert, Plin, Robert Plant's pen to right stairway. Or unexpectable hardship befalls us when we, so we walk around our, room, our houses binding Satan from our children's bedrooms. But it might come as a surprise, it oftentimes does, that that is not the view, the world view that the Bible presents to us when we start to talk about the spiritual realm. I would make an argument that those sort of more bizarre conceptions of the spiritual world are far more a product of medieval philosophy than it is anything like the cosmology of the Old and New Testaments. And that mistaken conception, I think, is never more apparent than when you begin to look at the Bible. Orthodox Christians have always asserted that the Bible is a wholly unique book of religious antiquity. But exactly what do we mean when we say that? Put it this way, is the Bible a primarily human document or is it primarily a divine document? I think it's an interesting question because really you can almost divide up American Christians along those lines, depending on how they answer that question. On the one hand, more liberal Christians tend to stress the humanity of the Bible. 
It's a human document, therefore. Therefore, it bears the marks uh, uh, and mistakes, they would say, of a book that's written by fallible humans. On the other hand, more conservative Christians tend to stress the divinity of the Bible. Therefore, it's a perfect book that's completely free of stain or human error. But here's the deal. I know my audience this morning. Christ Press clearly falls on the conservative side of that divide. So my comments this morning are going to be directed mostly at the subtlety of our error for the most part. But in the simplest of ways, the Apostle Peter gives us in our passage this morning one of the tidiest formulations of the Christian doctrine of Scripture when you ask whether it is a divine or a human document. And look at the second half of verse 21 to see that little formulation. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now look, there is a ton to unpack in that little verse, but for our purposes, we're going to attempt it under three different headings. We want to look at the problem of the Bible's humanity, the solution to the Bible's humanity, and then make a couple points of application at the end. Let's dive into that first one, the problem of the Bible's humanity. Look, um, in an interesting way, the humanity of the Bible began to be stressed in the modern world as an attempt by some to sort of rescue the Bible from detractors. In the mid-1800s, uh, American seminaries were being infiltrated, mostly by European scholars who were taking particular note of what they saw to be problems in the Bible. Some of those problems were what we might describe as external problems. Uh, they were talking about you know, how we got our Bible and the transmissions of the various uh, texts we have to, present, uh, to uh, produce our present Bible. Uh, other problems they felt like they noticed were what we might call internal issues, problems with uh, apparent contradictions in the stories and theology, uh, or as well as the, the, what they saw in the problems of synchronizing Bible events with known human history. In other words, they began to say the Bible is a flawed document, deeply flawed. And this was the birth of what would later become known as the higher critical view of the Bible, one which sought not to study the Bible on its own merit, but rather to stand outside of it and judge for how will it fit among the rest of the acceptable norms of a modern worldview. So in response to these problems, they began to stress the essential humanity of the Bible. Look, they reasoned, this is a human document, and therefore it bears all the marks of fallibility that you'd expect from human authors. When humans sit down to write down, invariably, they're going to make mistakes, especially when they're trying to write works of literature. And what's interesting is this viewpoint has become such an obvious and central feature of liberal theology that it's still very confidently peddled from pulpits and commentaries even in our day. <clears throat> last summer when I was working to prepare the series that we did last fall on the book of Acts, <laughs> I, stumbled across, um, I stumbled across this quote from a particular uh, 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 commentary on Acts which basically says two things. Number one, it's dealing with the way the people in the book of Acts wrote history. <laughs> and second thing it demonstrates is not every commentary is a good commentary. Bear with me. Listen to what he says. He says, look, in the first century, no historian was expected to write the kind of book we expect from professional historians today. That writer would enjoy a freedom, which nowadays we don't allow if a history book is to take and be taken seriously. Those writers were expected to write a readable and enjoyable book, dramatizing events, leaving out the dull parts, 
reporting legends and other good stories without being too worried about their accuracy, putting in his own guesses when his knowledge ran out. Well, that's ridiculous, <laughs> mostly because the writers themselves throughout the Bible are going out of their way trying to express that the things they saw about Jesus were seen not only by them as eyewitnesses, but the rest of the eyewitnesses. And they make appeals to common knowledge that these things were done out in the open. No, 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 that's not the way it worked. They're not making this stuff up. But what I want to focus on in this first point, though, is how subtly that pathway of thinking can enter into the way you view the Bible. I looked it up. It was Enlightenment uh, poet Alexander Pope who came up with the famous quote, to err is human. But it's almost as if these liberal theologians will say, no, to inevitably err is human. So are we really saying that any time a human being produces something, it has to contain errors? In other words, the problem with many people's view of the humanity of the Bible is that they're convinced that if a human had anything to do with it, it's got to be full of mistakes and contradictions. <clears throat> now look, I realize a lot of us conservative Christians are nodding our heads off saying, yeah, go own the libs, Les. That's what we like to see on Sunday mornings, right? But I want to suggest to you that this instinct, in many ways, can cause and create conservative Christians to people who turn the Bible into that magical incantation book and who begin to believe that the Bible was written in the way in which Robert Plant said he wrote Stairway to Heaven. Someone moved the pen for me, and out came the Bible. But that's not the Bible's view of itself. In other words, when we very subtly think that God is going to work in the world only through these mystical, bizarre, and fantastical experiences, we rob the Bible of its power and of the way in which God reveals himself in the created world. That is the problem of the Bible's humanity and something that we've got to realize that the Bible does not have that view of itself or of the world around us for that matter which leads me conveniently into my second point. That's the problem of the Bible's humanity. What's the solution? Well, the solution is the way Peter puts it in our text this morning. Now we're ready to dive into it. Look, Peter is defending his witness to Jesus in verse 16. Look at it again. <clears throat> he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. What's he saying? I'm not making this up. <laughs> On the contrary, I was an eyewitness. I was an eyewitness, Peter says, to something amazing, something mind-blowing. What was that? Well, he describes it in verse 17. Take a look. For when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, stop there. What is Peter talking about? What's he referring to, this majestic glory and all this sight? Well, we know very clearly that what he's talking about is what became known as the transfiguration. Do you remember this? You can find it in Matthew 17, uh, in Mark 9. It's also in Luke 9. All the synoptic gospels tell the story about when Jesus takes his three favorite disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they go up onto a mountain. And while they're there praying, Jesus begins to, to glow. I know, it's a crazy story, but he just begins to glow in front of them. And as they're sitting there trying to take in this crazy experience of what Jesus is doing, suddenly they hear a voice. And it is the voice of God the Father himself. And it's fascinating. 
What he's saying is what God the Father always says in every single speaking part he gets in the New Testament. Want to know what it is? He's doting over his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The only time you hear from the Father is when he's saying that about Jesus. Now here's the deal. Peter is writing this letter presumably years after that event. Can you imagine what it must have been like for him to reflect on that experience? I mean, how did he feel after that? How confident must he have felt? I mean, how assured must he have been of the truthfulness of Jesus having seen and heard a miracle like that? <laughs> well, look, don't get too hyped up about it because if you know the story of Peter of the New Testament, it ain't but a couple chapters later where Jesus is denying that he ever even knew this, <laughs> this glowing Jesus, right? At the time in which Jesus needed him the most, at the cross. And so it turns out, like we talked about last week, that these magical events that we think is going to produce certainty in us, they really don't work that way. Which is why I believe Peter then turns to the certainty that he wants his readers to have in verse 19. Look what he says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Why did he say we? Because you could be tempted to say to yourself when Peter comes along and says, I was there. Me and James and John, we were standing there. Jesus started to glow. There was his voice. It was amazing that you could still stand on the outside and be like, well, that happened to you. Didn't happen to me. Wish I could be a disciple who got voted, up, you know, voted to go up on the mountain with Jesus and see him glow. If I was there, then I would believe too. That's why Peter is saying, though, but we, all of us, have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, he's saying that magical event that we all witnessed, as great as it was, happened only so that it can, can uh, bear witness to the certainty that we all can have. Well, how could we have that? By embracing the truth, in verse 21, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, the only the Bible can give you the certainty that you want when you've placed yourself in God's hands. Now, how can that happen? Well, look at verse 21 again. Let's do it again. Because men spoke from God as they were carried along from the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit. Okay, now we can see how it is that Peter very carefully, in one simple power-packed statement, holds together the humanity and the divinity of the Bible. He says, yes, it is absolutely true that what we have as Scripture is that men spoke. It is humans that are speaking. They spoke out of their experiences. They spoke out of their personalities. They spoke out of all of the nuances of being humans. And so therefore, this is a tremendous affirmation for the ability of humans to speak on God's behalf. The doubt that our secular neighbors have that it's even possible for a human to reveal the God of the universe is directly contradicted in what Peter's saying here. Humans actually have spoken infallibly when they were writing Scripture. So no one who really cares about the Bible can hold a view of the Bible that downplays its humanness. We can't do that. Because what makes these prophets so unique, though, is that as they spoke, God was superintending their writings. He was using their personalities. He was guiding their experiences. He was fashioning their dispositions so that when they spoke, they were speaking God's words. How? Look what verse 21 says. It says, they carried them along. 
Hey, by the way, that's one verb in Greek. And every other time that you see in the New Testament, that little word, word grouping translated, it just means to bring, <laughs> to bring something. In other words, you moved, but the Spirit brought you. That is the manner of the Bible's authorship. Men spoke as they were carried along. So the point is, the Bible is human and divine. And that ought not be crazy foreign to you, especially if you've been paying attention to Christian doctrine. Throughout the church's struggle with Christian doctrine, we've come up with formulations just like this. I can think of a few. Firstly, have you ever heard anyone describe God as being transcendent but also imminent? Okay, so take those two words. Transcendence of God just means that he's other. He's heavenly. He's separate from us. He's majestic. He's not like us. However, his eminence is his nearness. It's his closeness. It's his deep understanding of us. And so you'd be tempted to think to yourself, well, which is it? Is God super exalted up in the heavens or is he near us? Answer, both. We hold those two together. Why? Because we had it exemplified for us in the Bible. How about this one? Who is most responsible for your growth as a Christian? You, your efforts, or God's efforts on your behalf? It's a trick question, right? Because of places like Philippians 2, 12, and 13, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There it is. It's your work. You're supposed to do it. Don't, not too fast. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Whoops. Here we are. There again, there's this some sort of cooperation between my efforts as growing as a Christian and God's work on my behalf. The final illustration, I think, is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus. Which is it? Was Jesus fully human or was he fully divine? Hundreds of years of Christian theology came to pound out this simple phrase, fully God, fully man. Mysterious, yes, but you have to hold together both. Now, here's the question before we finish this point. Why in the world does this matter? Because on the one hand, I think it matters because we have to say very clearly that we cannot go with the liberal theologians who want to reduce the divinity of the Bible because of the perceived, their perceived errors. Choosing my words carefully, I use the word perceived because I do think that there's mountains of scholarship that's been done to do marvelous work at harmonizing apparent contradictions in Bible interpretation. Not only that, but historical and archaeological studies have done the same thing for the other external aspects of Scripture as well. But again, I want to talk to my own audience here for you know, religious conservatives like us. Ask the question this way, how is it that the Spirit is at work in the world? Think about that for a second. When you think about the Holy Spirit, what's your impression of how he works. Does it instantly go to the magical, the mystical, the weirdly unexplainable? Because if we don't get our doctrine of the Bible correct about how Peter views it, then it's actually going to keep us from knowing exactly how to recognize the Spirit's work. This is huge. Tim Mackey is the theologian uh, in residence at the Bible Project and actually says that almost every time when you see the Holy Spirit working in the Bible, with the exception of Genesis chapter 1, where humans are being created, the Holy Spirit is working through humans. 
Human beings are the ones that are doing it. Think about this. You've got Joseph's interpretation of dreams in Genesis, um, Genesis 41. It was wrought by the Spirit, the text says. You, you've got places like where the Spirit empowers some guy named, uh, named Bezalel to design and build the tabernacle in Exodus uh, 31. Throughout the book of Exodus, you've got Moses being empowered to lead Israel by the Spirit. In the book of Judges, the Spirit falls upon guys like Samson and the rest of the judges so that they can save the Jews. David's victories over his enemies is oftentimes attributed to the Spirit coming upon him, like 1 Samuel 16. Look, the, the simplest survey of the last half of the Old Testament will show absolutely that it's attributed to the Spirit coming upon them. Even to the point where Jesus is empowered in his own mission at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, by the Spirit falling down. Even the supernatural abilities of the apostles at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 are done by the Spirit. Do you see the point? The point is that when the Spirit works in the world, the visible nature of His work is the actions of humans. That's the point. And if you start to grasp this idea, really wrap your mind around it, it'll transform the way you look at the world around you. Because God's work in the world is not through magic tricks. Any more than the devil is at work in backwards playing rock music. God is at work through other people. Through people just like you and just like me. And when I begin to see it and recognize it, I realize that the world is electric with his fingerprints if we need the right places to look for it. Reminds me of the old joke about the guy who lived in a floodplain and the, tide, the waters were rising, <clears throat> and a truck drove by and said, hey, jump in, the water's rising. And the man was like, nope, I'm trusting in the Lord to save me. Well, the water rises and forces him up to the roof of his house, at which time a boat comes by and says, hey, jump in, it's going to get worse. The man says, nope, I'm trusting in the Lord who's going to save me. Finally, the water rises up to the man's chest, and a, and a helicopter flies over and drops down a rope ladder, and the pilot screams, hey, there's still time, grab the rope. No, the man says, I'm trusting in the Lord to save me. Well, the floodwater rises and the man eventually drowns. Upon his arrival in heaven, he's greeted by St. Peter at the pearly gates and the man has questions. Didn't you see that? What gives? I mean, I trusted that the Lord would save me from that flood and I end up dead. I mean, why did you do that? To which Peter replies, look, we sent you a truck and a boat and a helicopter. What more did you want? Okay, a couple of you laughed. The first service, not a laugh at all. It was weird. I don't know what's wrong with those people. Here's my question, though, whether it's funny or not. Do you get the joke? That's the point. Because the point is that God, when he works, is at work in the world. In his good creation and in the other images of God that you and I call human beings all around us. And we have to be ever mindful in every generation that our spirituality does not lapse into a false Gnosticism that separates the, the physical world from the spiritual and emphasizes that real Christian living is some kind of disembodied spirituality. That is not how the Bible projects it. Okay, so that's my little offer to solution to Bible's humanity. In closing, very briefly, how, we, how would we apply this in a couple ways? I think there's three ways. Number one, we don't need to be intimidated by the humanness of the Bible. The Bible's divine and authoritative nature is not at odds with our humanity. 
It's that when we read these divine human words, what happens is, is we begin to encounter another mind in the words and the experiences of these human authors. Who, just like us, we're seeing the mind of God. A mind who had a different view of reality and certainly a different view of humanity than you and I have, if left to our own devices. And so what this means for us is, is that it is essential to our study of the Bible, to any Christian growth, to get familiar with the cultural, the historical, the linguistic, the habits of these ancient peoples, and all the while getting to know the personalities and life experiences of these authors. So that when we read it, we can make sure we're not reading our own mistaken views about God into their experiences. But secondly, if you'll wrap your mind around this, I think it'll open up for you some real beauty in the Bible. I found one, well, well, good commentator who put it this way. He said, look, God did not give us a stereotyped Bible. I love that phrase, a stereotyped Bible. He said, with one style from Genesis to Revelation. Rather, he prepared the authors in individuality and talents. He permitted David's love for nature to shine through in the Psalms. Paul's acquaintances with pagan literature to be evident in his epistles. Luke's medical knowledge to characterize his writings. Mark's abruptness to be in his gospel. Paul's more logical manner to be contrast with John's almost mystical eloquence. But all the time, each wrote what God willed. That is the miracle of divine inspiration. That's about as good as it can be said. It'll open up new avenues of beauty for the Bible. Thirdly and finally, understanding the Bible correctly in this way will give you a new sense of what your mission is in the world. In other words, not only when you're reading it for yourself, but especially when we are making an attempt to, to, to demonstrate the faith that we have come to embrace to the world around us. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the world around us is rapidly secularizing. Rapidly. And so it will not do for us to hold our Christianity only when we are here at church and not defend our beliefs to a rapidly changing world. And I can tell you that nine out of ten times the Bible gets put in front of somebody because of a friendship, because of a community, because of a neighborhood where people modeled and displayed for them not just the scriptures alone as they are, but also in modeling the truths of Jesus to their community. Think about it. The Bible is human and divine so that when you reach out to your neighbor with love and care and concern and, 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 and action, that very act can be carried along brought about as an act of God in that person's life. That's what this means. It means, therefore, when you begin to work through the decidedly painful and difficult task of forgiving your enemies hmm, and actually deciding you're going to bless those who curse you, that God can use that to be the incarnation of his love and forgiveness. You see, part of the one that deals is it's hard for people to hear that Jesus forgives their sins. It may be because they've never had anybody actually forgive them. We are here to incarnate that. Think about it. When you invite someone to church and simply say, hey, just, just come and see. I can't explain it all. I don't know half of that guy up there is saying every week anyway. But just come and see. 
When you do that, you can be the hand of Christ in their lives. Why? Because the Bible is both human and divine. He works through humans. He does miraculous, God-like things through people as small as us. And when you get the Bible, you get our mission to the world right as well, which seems like it's probably worth the effort, don't you think? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then give us those eyes to see Scripture well, to see your Spirit at work. Lord, forgive us that we've detached our, our daily human living from this inner spiritual thought world that we have, when your, your way of viewing us is much more, it's more tangible. It's flesh and blood. It's these humans around which we walk and play and work and laugh and joke and weep. Allow us to see them in new ways, perhaps, because we come to understand that your holy word that you have brought us, infallible, inerrant, perfect in all of its parts, the majesty of its style was written by humans. Father, in all that, let us stand in awe of it and commit ourselves to knowing and understanding it more. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.